You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Uh, today, I'm really excited to have a legend in fantasy uh, literature and in gaming. Uh, if you are a kid of the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know the name uh, Margaret Weiss and her contributions to uh not only tabletop gaming and RPGs, but uh, the Dragonlance series and so many other things. Um, welcome to episode 200, Margaret. Thank you so much, and thanks for asking me. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, I begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or a storyteller? <laughs> well, I was a storyteller long before I ever thought of being a writer. Um, I, As uh, most of us were. Yeah. My um, my kindergarten teacher used to put me in front of the class when during nap time, and I would tell stories while the kids uh, were on their little blankets, and um, she did her paperwork. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, what sort of stories did you uh, – were the kind of things that grabbed your imagination? Well, I don't really remember. Um, I know. Uh, I kind of vaguely remember sitting up in front of the class, um, but my mother tells me that at one point I told the kids Treasure Island because I had been watching it on um, Walt Disney, and uh, but I hadn't seen the uh, the last episode, so I just made up my own ending. <laughs> so was that those uh, when when Disney did the Sunday night? Um, right. Uh, yes. Yes. So I'm trying to remove, but you hadn't seen the end of it. remove the shelving. He's seeing a penny. So <laughs> come here, Clay. So no, but I hadn't seen the end, so I made up my own. So I have no idea what that was like. Uh, nice, nice. Um, were you a big reader uh, as a as a kid? Oh yes, yeah. My parents were both readers, and um, we didn't. You know, this was back in the fifties. We didn't go to the movies or you know, do do that much. But uh, every week we went to the library. And, um, you know, I think one of the proudest moments of my life when I got my library card. I, re- I remember getting my first library card, too, and it's like a, a rite of passage. It is. It really is. I guess it's it's kind of like for kids today when they get their first uh, device where they can uh, get to Google, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. I just remember that. It was a little paper library card, and I remember I was just so proud of it, uh, oh, yeah. especially because I got I got to take out my own books instead of having to share with my mother. <laughs> right, right. Oh, I don't know about you, but our, uh, our library um, – Let's see. In the kids section, I think we got to check out like six things at a time. Yes. Uh, but when you when you got your upgraded like uh, uh, you know adult card or whatever, you got to check out like like twenty at a time oh, or something. I know. Crazy it number. Was, and, yeah. Yeah. That and, was so cool. Plus the fact you yeah. got to go into the adult section because I wasn't allowed to go in there. You know, I had to stay in the right. kid. I mean, they actually monitored you know your age, which was weird. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do remember once, I think I was in the second grade, and I found a book. I wandered into the adult section, and I found a book called The Doll's House. And I really wanted to have my mother check it out for me, but she had to tell me. It wasn't uh, the kind of doll's house I was thinking of. It was Gibson's The the Doll's House. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) wow. Did that scar you for life? Uh, well, she wouldn't let me read it, <laughs> and I probably wouldn't have understood <laughs> it. But <laughs> oh, that's great! Um, 
you you are known for writing uh, fantasy uh, books and kind of adventure books and with these fantastical settings. Uh, but where were you raised? I'm I'm always really uh, intrigued by kind of how the places where we're from and the things that inform our our growing up years uh, tend to or or tend not to uh, affect the kind of things we wind up writing. Well, I was uh, born and raised in Independence, Missouri, um, and a very know. fantastical place. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I depended a lot on my own imagination. <laughs> As I can imagine, growing up in in rural Mississippi, um, you 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 lean on your imagination a whole lot. Yeah. There's just not a lot, of, not a lot of other outside uh, information <laughs> coming in. <laughs> Um, you you graduated from college with a BA in literature and creative writing. Mm-hmm. Was this something that you always knew that you wanted to do? Well, no. <laughs> when I went, I mean, I I always I was a storyteller, and when my friends and I in the neighborhood got together to play, I would devise stories that we would we kind of would act out and roam up and around the neighborhood and in these stories, um, and I was. I like to write, and uh, I remember I did a book report on Sherlock Holmes when I was in the ninth grade, which I loved Sherlock Holmes. And so it was like a 13-page book report when everybody else was doing a paragraph. <laughs> and my teacher flunked me on it because she said I, I plagiarized it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, um, but, you know, I really what I really wanted to be then was an artist. Uh, and that's I when I went to college, I was planning to major in art. But um, my freshman English teacher kept me after class one day, scared me to death, uh, and told me that uh, she thought I had a really a real gift for writing, and I I ever thought about majoring in writing. And I always define that moment, and I still remember it uh, as like in the Blues Brothers when the sky opens up and the sun shines down on John Belushi. And he goes, you know, he knows he has to put the band back together. That was my moment when I realized, yes, I was meant to be a writer, not an artist. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Which my major. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And you switched your major there. Wow. Um, Did you you have any inkling uh, that you would wind up writing the kinds of things that you have? I was, yeah, I kind of, well, I read Lord of the Rings in the 60s when it first came out and, um, you know, was sweeping across the college campuses. And that's where I read it when I was in college. Um, I didn't, I kind of looked for other fantasy books at the time, but there weren't that many, especially like Tolkien. So um, I went into, well, at that time, uh, I would write anything. You know, and I started doing, um, I had an agent and I started doing um, juvenile nonfiction just to pay, you know, make some extra money. Um, So that's, so I did that. And then writing novels on the side, I'd always kind of lean toward the fantastical um, just because it gives you so much scope for the imagination, as Anna Green Gables would say. Um, And so I did that. I wrote The Star of the Guardians, which is kind of galactic fantasy, um, sent it to my agent who sent it off, and it got rejected. Most of my novels got rejected, which is pretty typical. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> they were right. bad. But Susan Allison was uh, editor at Ace at the time. I think she's vice president or something. Now. Anyway, she sent me a really nice personal rejection note, which I felt, oh, wow, <laughs> I've almost made it. So then I went work for TSR and, um, you know, kind of changed my life. Right. Uh, some of those personal rejections are, uh, are like gold, yes. uh, it, not only for, for the, the writer's morale that someone actually took the time to write a, a personal note, but, um, uh, a lot of times the, uh, the, the criticism in there is, is just kind of exactly what you need. And the fact that someone took the time to do that is, uh, uh, sometimes rejections are just as uh, important as the uh, the acceptance. Yeah, uh, the they really are because um, you know. And Susan told me 
kind of what I needed to hear, which was that it had some good things about it, but it wasn't there. You know, it wasn't ready to be a novel. And when I went, when Bantam, years later, after the success of Dragonlance, when Bantam said they might be interested, they would be interested in publishing it, I got it out of the box and it it was awful. (laughs) And I realized that Susan was, had been even more than kind (laughs) to see anything. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah, I actually met her years later and told her that she was very astonished. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, um, before we get into your time at TSR, um, you you talked about uh, uh, discovering Tolkien in college when it was kind of sweeping across the college campuses. Um, I was not born until 1971, so I, I obviously missed all of that. But what was that like when... Uh, because fantasy literature was not really a thing, especially not the way it is now. Um, was it kind of an underground movement? Yes. Was it uh, was it popular? Like, how did uh, what what was the the sentiment at the time uh, that this weird book about elves and dwarves and hobbits was uh, you know uh, was kind of spreading around? Well, it was definitely an underground movement, and it kind of, as I remember, it started in California. That was where we heard about it. I was in the University of Missouri. In the Midwest, that at that time there was the anti-war movement was very big. There were the hippies uh, in California, and the, there was a lot of hitchhikes, and uh, especially with college students, and uh, just traveling from university to university, basically to spread the anti-war crusade. But also, um, they brought Lord of the Rings with them. And it was it was actually seen at the time as an anti-war book, um, which is kind of I think one reason it was it started becoming so popular, and then uh, it just caught on. Well, you know that's that's really interesting because uh, I, I think we we know that Tolkien uh, at least envisioned most of the story when he was in the trenches in World War One, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, and, and so I could see that, you know, there, there's definitely some subtext there um, about industrialization and maybe the military industrial complex and um, right. all of that stuff. And and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Frodo and, and Sam's kind of travel log, I could see where that would resonate with kind of the hitchhiking culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that's that's really interesting. I never really thought of it in that light, mm-hmm. but uh, I could see where that would kind of really take hold in that environment. Yeah, it really did. And um, uh, it just, um, I mean, I was introduced to it by a friend who had read it and told me that she thought I would like it. And um, uh, I just, I devoured it. (laughs) Between that and playing bridge, it's a wonder I got out of college. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I have a friend who who said he he played bridge to... um, to fund his college. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, but you, you looked for other fantasy, but there just weren't that many um, out there. I, I think Tolkien kind of, uh, kind of planted the flag for that. Uh, yeah, he? he really did. Um, I read, I, I tried to get into Anne McCafferty and just really couldn't. Uh, and then I think the other one that, that, People were reading was the worm or robberus, and I couldn't get into that one at all. Uh, so <laughs> I just, uh, you know, looked for other things, put it aside. Right, right, right. Um, so tell me about your time at TSR. How did that come about? And um, this uh, in in the early days, there, uh, you know, this was kind of another kind of underground subculture that that kind of came about wasn't it yeah um when you went there what what was the uh the environment like well i went there and i was there in i think i arrived in 83 and it was very serendipitous um i read an article i was working at that time as an editor for a small publishing company in independence and i read an article uh, in publishers weekly about this game dentists and dragons that was a phenomenon in this com- company, TSR, that had started as, um, you know, just publishing games around Gary's kitchen table. 
and had now become a Fortune 500 company in like five years or something. And I was intrigued. They gave a description of the game. I was really intrigued by the sound because I thought it would be such a great game to play with my kids, you know, foster imagination. So a friend of mine came over and ran the game for us, and I loved it. My kids did too. And um, so then in Publishers Weekly, I saw they had, PSR had an ad for a game designer. So I applied. (laughs) And um, they sent me a test. They were very big on tests, so I had to take this test, and I, I flunked it because I knew absolutely nothing <laughs> about the game, and so, of course, they said thank you, but no thank you. But my agent, Ray Schiefner, lived in Milwaukee, and Jean Black, who was the edit, book editor at TSR, knew Ray. She was looking for an editor who was also a writer, and by that time, I'd had a bunch of my kids' books published. and. Um, so she went to Ray and asked if he knew anybody. And he said, well, I have this client, Margaret White. So she got in touch with me and asked if I'd like to come up for an interview. And I did. And she hired me that day. She did say, I'll never forget this. She took me out to lunch and she did say, now, this company isn't really all that stable. <laughs> There's been some, <laughs> you know, financial problems, things but you know, we're, we're still doing well. and." Um, I just jumped at the chance. I mean, they say that, you know, you, you make your own luck, but I think a lot of times luck is knowing uh, kind of where you need to be. And she told me a little bit about this new project they had called Dragonland. And one of my jobs was going to be becoming the book editor of Dragonland. And I immediately thought this is this. And I knew nothing about the story, anything else. I hadn't met Tracy. I just thought this sounds really amazing. And so I took the job and moved my Wisconsin and, you know, went from there. <laughs> I, I'm always amazed by, um, you know, like you were talking about luck and, uh, you know, um, it, People's everybody's story has uh, has these great twists and turns that no one ever could have predicted. And you can call it luck or serendipity or, or whatever term you want to use for it. Um, but, uh, you know, two things always kind of turn up is that is that writers that are successful work really hard and they put in a lot of time uh, before they ever uh, see commercial success or, or whatever. And, and people interpret that as overnight success when the reality is there's lots and lots and lots of time uh, that goes unnoticed that's paying dues and, and honing your craft and all of that. And then the other thing is that people, um, uh, you know, sometimes luck does play in and, and, and some of that is just learning when to say yes mm-hmm. uh, to the right things and, and things that, that may not even seem like good ideas at the time. <laughs> like, you know, you went to work for this, uh, you know, kind of unstable company uh, that, that turned out to be a really, really great decision for you, uh-huh. I think. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and just, you know, meeting the people, I made friends there that have, that have been my friends, you know, for the rest of my life. Uh, it was it was an amazing experience. Um, was was Gary still at TSR when you went there? No, at that time, Kevin Bloom, the Bloom brothers had taken over the company um, or, and Kevin was CEO. Gary was out on the West Coast uh, who dealing. I think he was supposed to be making the D&D movie deals and stuff like that. So he was out on the West Coast and um, the company was was being run by the Blooms. Gotcha. Um, TSR was this really odd uh, company to, uh, you know, they they made tabletop games, these pen and paper um, role playing games. Uh, What an odd uh, organization to then start writing and publishing their own novels. Uh Uh, How did that whole um, kind of publishing uh, arm come about from from this little company? Well, that was Rose Estes. She was the author of the Endless Quest books. Rose um, was, I think, number 13 higher by the company. Um, she, uh, uh, and um, she basically was a, answered the phone uh, while she was there. But she, um, but she had, and then, let's see, 
Okay. So at this point in her life, Rose uh, was doing a book or an article on the circus. And she joined the circus to kind of get the inside scoop on them. And she was in a laundromat one day. Uh, she left TSR, was in a laundromat one day, and um, came across these Choose Your Own Adventure novels. And she read one and thought immediately this would be a great thing to work with Dungeons and Dragons. So she packed up the kids, left the circus, and went back to TSR and presented the idea to the company. And um, she tells the story that it was that it was shelved. They kind of sat on it and she kept going back every once in a while and picking it. She went back to work for the company, picked it up and showed it and um, to some of the management. And they were going, yeah, yeah, right. And then uh, one day um, someone asked what new ideas that they had for games or products. And someone just said, well, there's these endless quest books. And they said, wow, that's a really cool idea. And so Rose, they hired Rose to write the first four, I believe, and published those. And they hit the times list and they, and then she wrote two and they were just, they were huge. So by that time, make money doing books. And so they, uh, Jean Black was as head of the book department, and that's when she decided continuing this, uh, the Endless Quest line, but they would expand outward, and she envisioned adult novels to go with the new Dragonlance project. So you came on as uh, editor for what would be the Dragonlance line, is that right? Yeah, I was book editor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how did you become part of the um, uh, the uh, the creative team from editor? <laughs> well, as part of, as the book editor, because the novels were supposed to present the story, the novelized story of what was going on in in the adventure modules, and this was the first time that CSR had ever published adventure novels that had uh, kind of an overarching storyline. Um, and this was Tracy's idea. He, uh, Laura Hickman actually came up with the idea of incorporating game to it, or story into game products. Um, before that, like Tracy said, you know, a module would come out and it'd be find the dragon, kill the dragon, steal the treasure. And the next month you'd find the dragon, kill the dragon, steal the treasure. And when Laura and Tracy published their own D&D modules with complete lack of regard for copyright laws, um, <laughs> <laughs> they incorporated, they added a story to their modules and they were very successful. And that's why TSR eventually hired Tracy. They told him they could either hire him or sue him for copyright infringement and they'd much rather hire him. <laughs> so he and Laura <laughs> came up with the idea for Dragonlance for a world where um, people rode dragons and um, they actually came up with the first three characters, Tannis, Laurent, and Kitty And then Tracy presented that idea to the company, and they decided it would be a series of 12 modules. And so I was in charge of boiling this huge storyline down to novel size, and they were going to hire some high-powered author, fantasy author, to write it. Um, but like Tracy said, they weren't going to allow him to keep the rights to the characters, and they were going to reward him for that by not paying him anything. <laughs> so uh, fantasy writers were hanging up in droves. Um, and uh, so I sat in on, from the time I came on in 83, I joined the Dragonlance team and sat in on the meetings. And like I always said, Tracy told me a story, and I fell in love. Jackson's battle to take control over his own mind and life portrays what millions of people are fighting with around the world, mental illness. His mother, desperate to free him from his demons and desperation, faces her own turmoil and anguish, doing anything possible to save her son through love and hope. 
After countless emotional and heartbreaking triumphant moments, June and her son must both accept that only Jackson can save himself. Pick up Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin and discover why people are raving about this book and saying things like, Jackson is symbolic of millions living with some form of mental illness and his mother represents the millions who have their own struggles caring for someone with a mental health issue. Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin. Pick it up today at Amazon.com. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com So this was early... Uh, 80s, 83, mm-hmm. um, I think you said. And since your time uh, when you discovered Lord of the Rings in the, the mid to late 60s, um, when when you looked for other fantasy and really couldn't find any that resonated with you, um, what happened to uh, fantasy between the late 60s and the early 80s? Had it really blossomed? Were there more... Um, uh, more authors and more stories out there that were, were trying to fill that niche? Yes. Persinara came out in that time. And Anne McCaffrey's right. books were very successful. Uh, Andre Norton. Uh, of course, that, you know, Anne McCafferty would bristle if you said anything about her writing fantasy to her. She wrote science fiction, as she was always quick to right. tell you. Um, Andre Norton actually wrote a book for TSR, a book about Dungeons and Dragons, although it wasn't, it wasn't, very well received. I I can't even remember the name. I think I did read that. Um, and uh, but so yeah, so fantasy was was getting to be very popular. It was a very popular genre, although it was still looked upon as like you know science fiction writers and readers kind of still look down their nose at it. So <laughs> when when you guys uh, you said that that Tracy uh, kind of told you the story and and pitched this idea to you. Um, what was your, what was your writing process like? I, I know that you teamed with, with Tracy Hickman for a very long time on, on many, many projects. Uh, what was your creative process like, uh, with the two of you and how did two people with, uh, with very different, um, kind of visions and things, how do you coalesce those things into this wildly popular series that, um, that you guys, uh, did for so long? Um- you know, once they decided that Tracy and I should write the books, which they had hired another author and then ended up firing him because they didn't like what he was doing. Um, and <laughs> Tracy and I took one weekend and we wrote the first five chapters in the prologue. I've never done that since. But we were so into this. We knew we should be the ones to write these books because we had the vision of what we wanted to do. And... Um, Tracy was the game designer, so he was in charge of that huge project. I was the writer. We both were doing this on our own time because I was involved in other projects. And um, so we gave our chapters to Jean Black, who told me years later that she really only read them so she wouldn't hurt our feelings. Uh, But she took them into her office and she read them. And Tracy and I sat in my little cubicle. and Jean came back and she said, wow, she said, this is what we're looking for. Uh, so they fired the other author, got the advance because they were afraid he was going to sue. And um, so we had, 
I think, three months to write those books because we had to meet his deadline. Uh, and he'd already used up three months. So, um, so again, I wrote, we were, I wrote at night and like I said, Tracy didn't have time. He was with the game. So I would write the books and I was the writer anyway, Tracy knew writing game products. Uh, so I wrote and at night and on the weekends and I'd give Tracy what I'd written and he'd read it over and make notes and then we would rewrite and I turned it, you know, turn it into Jean who was editing and, uh, that's how we established our working relationship. <laughs> wow. Um, you were in, involved in this, uh, with this company that was, that was making tabletop games and that the games had a, uh, a rabid following, uh, from the very beginning. Um, how did the, the crossover between the games and the novels, uh, how did they go over with the, um, uh, with the, the gaming population, did, did people see the novels as extensions of the games? Were they uh, something completely different or was this something that kind of scratched the itch uh, for gamers between gaming sessions? Kind of, what kind of feedback were you getting well, from, from the gaming community? I had written um, a short story about Raceland and Caridman when, when I was first introduced to Raceland, which was through Larry Elmore's painting of him and Caridman. Um, my job at the beginning was I had all these characters and I knew their stats and I knew what they looked like because Larry and the artist had done these fantastic paintings, but I didn't know their background. Uh, that was my job to come up with that. So I knew Raceland had golden skin and hourglass eyes, and then he was called the sly one. And then he had this twin brother who was perfectly normal looking. So I asked Larry, I said, okay, why does Raceland have golden skin and hourglass eyes? And Larry said, because it would look cool. So <laughs> I had to come up with a reason, and that led me to understanding Raceland and Caraman and this codependent relationship they had. And Raceland just became a very real character to me. And um, so I wrote, they wanted a short story that publicized the novel. So I wrote The Test of the Twins that appeared in Dragon Magazine, and um, which was the first Dragonlance story to go out on, on the market. And the story generated more mail than Dragon had ever received about a short story. So we knew that, that the gaming population was, you know, was interested in this and kind of looking forward to it. Uh, but then our distributor at the time was Random House. And Random House told management that nobody would ever read this novel because who had ever heard of Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman? We were completely unknown. Um, and so management came back, and this was supposed to have been a trilogy, but they came back and said, we don't think this was going to sell, so we're only going to put out one book, and you have to put an ending on it. It can't be a trilogy, so that's why it ends with the wedding of River, Wind, and Gold Moon. Um, and... Uh, at about that time, the company was going through more financial upheavals. Uh, Gary came back. The blooms were gone. At one point, a lawyer had taken over the company. I don't remember why. Uh, <laughs> in the middle of all this, they fired the marketing department. And so Tracy and I not only wrote our book, but we were left promoted, <laughs> which is why we ended up doing a reader's theater at Gen Con, talking about reading portions of the book. and. People loved it, and they said, oh, we really, you know, we really like this. So, so the book got published, and it got cut massively <clears throat> because um, they said it could only be 224 pages long because they wanted a 295 price point. So we went through and we cut huge sections of it. And in fact, I'd love to someday go back in and do a revised version and put in everything that got cut. But anyway, the book came out. And it went out to the game stores first because everything, novels went to the hobby and, um, you know, the other books went to Random House to the distributor and they were supposed to send them out to the bookstores. So it went to the hobby and, you know, in those hobby stores, <laughs> they didn't carry novels. They didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> they ordered maybe one or two and maybe stood them in front of the cash register, you know, or put them with the, with the game module. But 
the gamers bought it and we started and they'd pass it around to their friends. And then people started looking for the books in the bookstores and they couldn't find it. So we were getting calls and letters at TSR saying, you know, where is this book? So um, I called a, a bookstore owner in Kansas City and asked, or pretended to be a customer, and asked for the Dragons of Autumn Twilight book. And the buyer said, you know, she said, I wish I knew where to get that. I'm getting calls for that, and I don't know where. I don't know who publishes it. I don't know anything about it, but people want to read it. So I went and told Jean, and Jean said, okay, call the fantasy buyer at um, Barnes & Noble and offer to send him a book. Find out his name and address, and we'll send him a book. So I did. And I called Barnes and Noble and got the switchboard. And I said, I need the name and address for your fantasy editor buyer. And the next moment, they're putting me through. And I hear this guy answer the phone and says his so-and-so. <laughs> and I thought, I can't. I thought, I cannot promote my own book. This just, you know, so I made up a name. And I said, I worked for TSR. And we had this book, uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. And he said, Oh my gosh, he said, I just got a call from a store owner in Kansas City looking for that book. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Well, what a coincidence. Um, so as it turned out, Random House had not even bothered to tell the bookstore buyers about the book because they thought it would oh be, goodness. you know, worthless. And so they called Random House and they said, Oh yeah, we made a mistake and the book went out to the bookstores, and that was in the fall. And in December, I think it had hit the Times list. Well, I bet that really got Random House's attention. Didn't it? <laughs> it did. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know, so you hear stories like that, and and you you wonder why uh, kind of indie publishing has really. Um, you know, taken off and, and has made such a splash in the last few years because sometimes the, the big publishers um, just kind of cut their, their noses off mm-hmm. just to spite their face. It's, it's, a, it's amazing that, that things, uh, you know, have gotten done through the years. But, you know, uh, but I, I love your story of how you made your own serendipity uh, <laughs> there. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, when these, uh, so, uh, obviously, that got Random House's attention, and, and they started printing books and, and helping uh, distribute and, and market. I'm assuming after that, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, as the as the novel started coming out, and, and you guys really started making uh, a name for yourselves in in the genre and in the in the in the space, there um, did you get any any feedback from from other? Um, any other quadrants of of fantasy uh, writing and publishing did did uh, uh, did did the other uh, factions kind of accept you guys or, or was there was there any kind of uh, uh, animosity there that this little company of of you know game designers were now publishing these fantasy novels? Well, that yeah, so popular? I mean, nobody had ever published novels based on a game before, so right. Uh, we were kind of you know lumped into the the Star Wars, you know, writers who write Star Wars novelizations, you know, that was always kind of looked down upon. Um, kind of the work for hire, the work guys. for hire uh, kind of things, you know. Yeah. Um, and I remember that we got a review one uh, from a British reviewer who said uh, Dragonlance was too American to be fa- true fantasy, high fantasy. You should be British. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even too, mean? Well, I guess it was. Because the only thing I could think of was because, you know, our heroes were kind of working class, middle class people. Uh, they had jobs, right. they worked, and they got, you know, caught up in this, you know, kind of war, this amazing situation. Uh, that was the God only forbid. thing I could think of. <laughs> but I thought that was funny. <laughs> and Jane Black, I mean, we had talked about when we first started writing that, you know, whether we should write a kind of a high, make it a high fantasy style. And Jean said, no, she said, I really think these books need to be accessible to, a, you know, a wide group of people, uh, kids on us. And so we we tried to make our writing accessible, tried to have people talk like they would among their, you know, just everyday friends, 
Um, so that was kind of a conscious decision on that part. And, and it obviously paid off. Um, I, I think uh, to say that, that you guys connected with an audience uh, on a deep level is an understatement. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have some friends, uh, uh, Kevin Summers and, and Chris Bohr, uh, uh specifically, who are uh, writers, and uh, I connect with them on, on Facebook and stuff often. And, and I know that they have collected like uh, just about the whole series and, and passed them down to their kids. There's something about these novels that um, well, they're timeless and, uh, and they, they really hold up well. And, and like you said, they're accessible. You can, uh, you can find a young fantasy reader and, and hand them these books and, and you can see the, the fire that's lit, mm-hmm. uh, when they read these. Uh, so you guys did an amazing job. Oh, with that. thanks. We had fun. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your, your time at TSR, uh, came to an end uh what happened there and and what did you decide to go do when you left tsr well that was during the gary lorraine williams came in gary was suddenly out um i was still working as a book editor but i really didn't like working under lorraine um and tracy and i by this time we had tracy always said the hardest the first start uh, the second hardest thing to do would be to start Dragonlance and the hardest thing to do would be to stop it and that turned out true Tracy and I wrote Chronicles and Legends and by and we wanted to move on we had a new an idea for a new series that became the Dark Sword novels and TSR just wanted to do more and more Dragonlance uh, because it was you know it was still very very popular uh, so Tracy and I uh, took uh, Dark Sword to my agent, who didn't know any fantasy editors in New York, but he knew the Western editor at Bantam. So he sent the proposal for Dark Sword to the Western editor, who walked it over to the fantasy editor, um, who immediately, you know, who recognized our names and said, "Wow, you know, yeah, definitely, we want to buy this." And uh, so Tracy and I were able at that point. To you know, quit our jobs and strike out on our own, which was very scary because I still had two kids to support. Um, but you know, we did it, <laughs> and uh, but I, you know, still had I still had tons of friends at TSR. We both did. and uh, and she went back uh, when um, Brian Thompson, when Pat McGilligan was editor of Brian Thompson and Mary Kirchhoff, and went back and did more Dragonlance, but. But that's that's kind of how we struck out on our own. Uh, Dragon Lance has to be uh, the longest running book series uh, in print. I I would think uh, there's, uh, I mean it's it's enormous at this point. Um, do you ever feel? Uh, I I can imagine when something is that successful um, that maybe the the weight of it is uh, is a little daunting. Like man, I, I've created this thing and. And I may never get out from under it because uh, I've got other things I want to do in life, but but this thing is too successful. Uh, did you ever feel like that? No, I never did. Um, I mean, Dark Sword was successful uh, in its own right. And we did Rose of the Prophet, which kind of got caught up in world events because uh, it was about Arabs. And um, then then we did the Deathscape series. And that, that became almost as Successful as Dragonlance. That one really, really, uh, people really, you know, like that. That also hit the New York Times list. And so, um, so, but Dragonlance it was, it's your first love. You know, it's your first novel, it's your first love. It'll always be your first love, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so when you, uh, when you branched out and you said you and Tracy uh, pitched uh, the, Dark Sword trilogy. Uh, you guys were um, uh, you were names in in publishing at that time. That uh, that was a very different experience than uh, than when uh, Random House said we're not going to promote this book because nobody knows them. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was very different. <laughs> oh man, that had to be a great feeling. Um, are you and Tracy still writing together? No. Um... I'm writing with another uh, author, Robert Kramis. Tracy is involved in an amazing project called TheVoid.com. 
So if everybody wants to Google the void.com, uh, all one word, um, they can see it's, uh, it's, um, uh, 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 what do they call it? Uh, the name escapes me where you, you kind of go, uh, put on goggles and go into this other world. Virtual, virtual reality. reality. Yeah. It's a company that's doing virtual reality and they, they have, they have taken it beyond, you know, putting on goggles. I mean, you end all thing. I mean, they've had Harrison Ford do this and they, you know, they're opening, uh, they had, they had a Ghostbusters, uh, virtual reality and Madame those in New York and they're opening a new facility in Toronto. So Tracy's son was one of the founders of this company and he's now working full-time with them. Oh, and wow. I think he's doing some About writing that. with his wife, Laura. That's great to hear. Great here. I'll uh, I'll put a link to the void.com yeah. in the show notes and and uh, we'll all go check it out. Um you uh you own your own publishing company now. Uh I think I I read that you you have two publishing companies. Uh what to, how did that come about and and what sort of things are you doing? Well, I had a game publishing company, Margaret Weiss Productions, but I just recently retired from that. So, uh we did we did the Firefly game, the Supernatural game, Serenity Marvel, we did all sorts of game products uh, based on the Cortex system. And so I have retired from that. I went out on, you know, our last products were Firefly and where can you, you know, where can you go after that? It was just simply amazing. <laughs> right. uh, so I've retired and I'm just concentrating on my novels and doing flyball racing with my dog. That's my, that's my hobby. That's I, I was going to ask you about the dogs and the, what what is what is that that you guys do? Flyball racing. It's you can Google this too. Uh, it's a like a relay race for dogs. You have uh, a fifty foot long lane with four jumps or fifteen feet apart, and at the end of the lane is a spring loaded box uh, with a tennis ball in it, and the dog first dog on the team runs over the jumps hits the box, catches the tennis ball, runs back over the jump. Second dog goes uh, down, four dogs on a team, and you're racing against another team of dogs at the time, best time, and clean run. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of bark. We, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and your your team is the Barkbarians? Yes, uh-huh. That's so cool. That is so cool. I'll see if I can find a video and put in the in the show notes <laughs> to uh, to see what that's about. That's so cool. Um, you, you talked about your your game publishing company. Uh, is is gaming something that has uh, stayed with you all, all these years? Oh yeah. I mean, every year I go to Gen Con, the big gaming convention. Uh, this will be my thirty third or thirty fourth year at Gen Con. It's their fiftieth anniversary. Um, and so I. You know, I just I love playing games when every I also go to GaryCon every year, uh, which is a little little convention in honor of Gary Gygax. And uh, my friends and I get together and we play games. And uh, yeah, I just I've always, always loved it. Um, Something that uh, that that fascinates me because I grew up in this time uh, in the kind of I guess it was really about the mid 80s uh, is when it kind of reached a fever pitch. Uh, D and D was wildly popular, mm -hmm. and uh, the the tie in books uh, were were really getting popular and and uh, kind of taking over things. And then there's uh, all of this talk and um, uh, kind of backlash against um, D and D and and that whole kind of subculture started coming up from people that you know that thought it was evil and that that bad things were going to happen to kids from playing these games. Oh, and I stuff know like that. Um, as someone who was in the industry and and a uh, you know was was publishing the books, um, did you guys feel any of that backlash uh, there, or was this just kind of out on the fringes and didn't really reach? You oh guys? no, we we felt it. Um, there was this this religious track called Dark Dungeon. You can go online and find yes. it. And uh, I remember. Yeah, it. they would actually go into bookstores and put that in the book. You know, in uh, in like the Dragonlance book, they, they, yeah, they put this religious tract in there. And at one point, um, CB, I think it was CBS, they did a whole show on that. And yes. I think they came out and they toured the company. 
we had to take all our weird stuff down off our <laughs> off our cubicles and we had to look very staid and you know uh, business like and and you know you'd walk into the art room and the artists had Larry Elmark Parkinson Clyde Caldwell and Jeff Easley had these amazing paintings all over the wall you know all those had to come down <laughs> um so yeah so we were definitely a part of it and yeah, it was it was just weird. I mean, people that thought that, you know, when you played Dungeons and Dragons, you were casting spells and you could really have it would give you the power to summon demons, you know, and all this. And, and it was like, you know, like if this was true, would we really be working here? <laughs> it's right. Wouldn't we be out on our yacht somewhere in the Caribbean? But anyhow, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it was strange I'm, it's kind of calmed down but occasionally it resurfaces every once in a while i, yeah, I remember we uh, to, this was back in the days when we got mail actual letters and uh, right. i remember i remember one one letter i got that came to me that said dear miss wise would you please send me one of the Dragonlance books i want to read it but sister mary elizabeth says if i do i'll go straight to hell <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I think you should feel honored uh, that you wrote yeah. something that was that was worth the punishment. You know? <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! That's that's amazing. Um, so since then, uh, you've uh, you published a uh, a series of books with your daughter uh, a few years ago, didn't you? Yeah, we did two romance novels. Oh, that's oh, awesome. That how, did, how did that come about? <laughs> we just had wanted to do, uh, you know, a romance novel. And my agent thought we should try to pitch the idea. So we did. And we ended up writing two paranormal romances about male angels who come to Earth and the women who fall in love with them. Um, it was really, we had a good time. Uh, I wrote, so you did I wrote kind of a Nephilim kind of thing? I wrote the novel, my, or the, the basic part of the novel, and my daughter wrote all the salacious sex scenes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so we, well we that had to be comfortable those. but we we ended up not writing anymore after those two because the the restrictions they put on you when you write romance novels you know your hero has to do this and your heroine has to do that and she has to wear this and she can't do that uh which is something you do not get in fantasy writing you know you're allowed Right. free reign to your creativity and so we just decided it was it was more of a hassle than it was yeah. worth yeah. um speaking of, of fantasy and the the kind of wide open worlds that you have um for uh for writers that want to get into fantasy um you know it, it seems like we we take the same uh kind of basket full of tropes and and, uh, you know, fantasy writers just amaze me because you, you take, uh, you know, kind of a, um, uh, you know, a box of toys and everybody's box is similar. I'm not saying that, that they're the same, but, um, you know, a lot of great fantasy, uh, a lot of the set pieces are, are very similar. Yet we come up with these great stories that resonate with people and that tell uh, a brand new story every time. And I think people on the outside look and say, Oh, you've just got wizards and dragons. And you know, how can you do something different uh, with those things that have been done over and over and over again? Um, so as a writer who's written so much uh, in the genre, how do you continue to come up with new ideas and new ways of telling familiar stories? Well, that's the real challenge. Uh, Tracy always says, as far as, you know, people are always asking us where we come up with our ideas. And Tracy always says, well, there's this warehouse in Detroit. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how you feel is. sometimes. That you just go back to the warehouse in Detroit and, uh, and look for ideas. Uh, and I think for me, I, I can always come up with ideas for stories. That's never a problem. But the challenge for me became how do I make my dragons different? How do I make dragons in each world different from another? I mean, it's a real, it's a real temptation to want to do chromatic dragons like TSR or, you know, all red dragons breathe fire and all gold dragons are good, you know? Um, 
and so so that that's been a challenge and i really work when i come up with different worlds try to make the dragons different and and interesting as characters in their own right um your your newest book uh is uh, spy master mm-hmm. which is the first in a new series called dragon corsairs um what is this new series, and uh, and what what can you tell us about it? Well, it's set in the world of the Dragon Brigade, which was the series that preceded that. But this is a totally new series with some of the same characters introducing new characters. And it, uh, it's a swashbuckling book. One of my favorites as a child was The Three Musketeers. And this is not exactly the same time period as, as The Three Musketeers, but there are, there's, you know, gunpowder and pistols and cannons. Uh, ships. This is a world where islands float in the sky and continents. Uh, a few continents are, are anchored to the ground, but some float. And people travel this world on ships that fly through the air. And um, it's uh, so everybody is always mistaking it for steampunk, but it is not steampunk. Uh, it's just it's it's swashbuckling. It's fun. Our hero is our heroine is a pirate. Uh, our hero is kind of an anti-hero who is the spy master, and our other hero is a prince who may or may not be a pretender to the throne, and it's just, it's a lot of fun. We've had a lot of fun with it. Lots of court intrigue and spies and dragons. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. Um the book is called Spy Master Book One of the Dragon Corsairs series. Uh-huh. Um, I'll be sure to link it up in the show notes. Um, Margaret, thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, I'm I'm really happy that you joined me for the 200th episode. And uh, I I can't thank you enough for what you've done for the genre and uh, and what you've done for me. So oh, uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's, like I say, it's been lots of fun. Uh, where can people find you if they want to stay up to date? Because uh, you're still publishing. Uh, you've got lots going on. Uh, if, if God forbid, someone's not familiar with your work <laughs> and wants to dig into your back catalog, uh, do you have a website where they can uh, connect with you? Yes, it's Margaret Weiss, all one word, M-A-R-G-A-R-E-W-E-I-S dot com. And I'm also on Facebook. And you can hear all about my Thank- library. Oh, we're going to we're definitely going to look it up. I promise. Uh, Margaret, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of the Crime Beat and Alex Vane media thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says, Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Bone Thief, John Driscoll, Book One by Thomas O'Callaghan. A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park 
nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia Tea heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alagante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.